This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, family. How are you? And hi, Dr. Carr. Hey, Professor Hunter. How are you, my friend, my dear? Awesome. I'm awesome. Good seeing you. Always good to see you. Yes, it is. A whole global family. We get a message from Kenya. I saw somebody gave us a Kenya. Yeah, so. no, it's been, and, and, you know, I've been deep in the Olympics. I just want to shout out um, Allison Felix, uh, who How about that? became the most decorated uh, woman, I think, uh, Olympian, uh, bl- uh, Black woman for sure, but American woman. Uh, yeah, was, ever. Yeah, she ran 4946 in the 400 at the age of 35. First woman to win 10 Olympic track and field medals. Ty Come Carl on, Lewis sis. Come on, Olympic. sis track and field medals in American history. And she did that after losing her Nike contract because she got pregnant. And then she went over to the other uh, side and developed. She ran in her own shoes that she developed. And she also helped outfit a lot of the black women uh, or the women of the uh, Olympic team. So Allison Felix is a hero. A pure hero, shero, heroine, model. She yes. doing the thing. Now, 36, has she said whether or not she gonna try to go for 40? Why not? I mean, she looked amazing the first heat she came. Yeah, she- I saw. Yeah, I, yeah. And I was like, how is she doing this? But yeah, she. Yeah, Allison Felix is one of those athletes who, when you realize she's running again, you think about it and say, that can't be the same Allison Felix as 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah, because she's coming up on 20 years in a minute. <laughs> the exact same, too. It's like the exact same. Weird. Yeah. Well, well, black woman, you know, whether it be, you know, Tony K. Bombardier, the black woman is God. So we know that. We, in fact, we had that conversation. Y'all go in the narrative and look at our conversation. We're talking about Beyonce and Black is King. Like, yeah, we, we had that conversation. And she's living. Wow. So Nike decides to cross her over and she's like, bet. Thank you. Thank you. Goodbye. I'm going to win in my shoes. And I'm going to hit the rest of them off too. What? You, what how about that? Yes. <laughs> I love it. Oh, I love it. Right. Oh, well, you know what? Somebody reached out. And first of all, all of you all who are liking, press that like button. Those of you who are commenting in the chat and in, in the uh, in the comments, and please continue to do that um, because it, it's helping us in conversation. Somebody, for example, um, said when we were talking about Suni Lee, the young sister who came into gym, gymnastics and snatched the medal. Um, after, you know, our sister, Simone Biles, um, had to step back uh, from St. Paul. And then, so I had to double check it, you know, uh, Angie Porter. I said, Angie, said, she said, yeah, she's Hmong, H-M-O-N-G. And when we were talking about Vietnam, people don't know, the, and some people might not know, most people do, but for if you, if you don't know, the Hmong are what would be called a stateless people. So they are in a number of places, Laos, Vietnam, mostly in China, and they got pulled into the Vietnam, Vietnamese War, Vietnam War, rather, which is how her family found them end up over here. Um, the United States brought them to, United, to the U.S. because they were allies of the United States. But in many ways, the Hmong alliance with the United States was like when you see First Nations folk in this country fight in the U.S. military. I'll never forget being at the Museum of the American Indian, the Smithsonian one time, and listening to veterans, so-called American Indian veterans, talk about why they joined. And this elder says something that has stayed with me ever since. He said, you know, I ain't joined the United States military to fight 
for the United States. I joined the United States military in World War II. We were fighting because if Germany came over here, this is my land. You know what I'm saying? The only way I could get at the Germans was to put on an American flag. So the Hmong people weren't fighting the Vietnamese for America because they are their their population crosses a number of different countries. And so to see Suni Lee, I mean, in other words, if she had if she had been on that podium with a flag representing the Hmong people, there's no country called Hmong. It, so I just said that to say that in our conversation, when you brought her up, it resonated with people who were listening to remind us that all these lines on the map are very recent. So I want to thank you all for listening and, and joining us. This is a family. So anyway, go ahead. Go ahead. I mean, it was something. No, yeah. I'm going to say just that, you know, we're doing um, we're doing genealogy now and narrative. And if you haven't joined narrative, shame on you. Let's do it. Come on, y'all. Look, look. People are letting us know every day. Damn, all this over here? Oh yeah, we're just getting started. So, so genealogy is the is the next frontier been opened up on there. Right. Uh-huh. So we just did uh, Tanya Pinkins, um, her her family tree through her matrilineal line, and um, which is redundant. And you know she's from Gabon, and so I'm looking at the map and Gina Page, who's reading. She said, "Well, you know, there were no lines when your people were stolen from Africa." So these countries, these borders, Nigeria and Ghana and, you know, uh, Ivory Coast and Guinea and Sierra Leone and Liberia, these lines were created, you know, and divvied up, but your people were in this whole region. So Mm -hmm. we could say Gabon, but they were also found in Senegal and Guinea, you know, so it's, it's interesting when you, when you talk about a stateless, what you call them, a stateless people? Yeah, well, that's what, that's what the social structure would categorize the Hmong as a stateless people. In other words, these are people without a home country that would be the only one, which is, of course, absurd. And and at some point, we got to talk about Panama because Tanya's there now when she said, you know, where she is, America came and, and made that part of where she is sovereign. The, yeah. To the point that the Panamanians couldn't even come into it. Because That's right. The, the canal zone. In somebody else's land. Like, you think about the insidious way in which all of these countries have been divvied up and That's right. held out and uh, not just colonized and stripped of, of resources, but, you know, we have a whole ass uh, wall yeah. <laughs> between us and Mexico. Like, That's right. That's exactly. right. No damn sense. Really. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. It's a um, and it's a recent phenomenon, and it, and it's never been real. The thing that makes it real is force. Now I'll never forget something that Bill Cosby said Uh-oh. years ago. You know, of all people, right? Well, I guess it's interesting though, because again, it's like the sun. The thing in front of your face blinds you to everything else you can see. So, you know, yeah, it came out of the mouth of Bill Cosby. So Bill Cosby was at Howard University. This is before, long before I was there. In fact, I think I was still in graduate school in uh, in Columbus, Ohio. I don't even think I was in Philly yet. But anyway, he was on campus, Cramden Auditorium, giving a talk, which he did a lot, black college camps, you know. And he said, and I'm sure he was quoting somebody else over the years. I haven't been able to find it. But then again, maybe he said, he said, people tell you when you're in professional settings, don't speak Ebonics. And he said, it's good advice depending on where you are and you need to code switch. He said, but don't forget that there is no correct language in the world. If you can communicate, you can communicate. He said, you know what they say, they'll say to you, oh, that's, see, that's dialect. Don't speak in dialect. 
he said, um, do you know what English is? These are young people he listen. Huh? You know what English is? English is a dialect with an army and a navy. That thing resonated with me. So every line on the map, I'm Nigerian, you know, I'm Ghanaian, I'm from Chicago. We talked about that last week. Yeah, those lines are the product of force. They drew imaginary, and the Panama Canal, the canal zone, and again, last week when we talked about uh, Costa Rica, and we talked about Garvey. Garvey also went into the canal zone. Remember, they were building the Panama Canal at that time. And what Garvey saw was all that labor of enslaved, formerly enslaved Africans, native Panamanians, as we know, you know, there's populations in all those places. And we get a narrative as we grow and continue to connect. We're going to talk about Belize. We're going to talk about all, just, I just because Panama, Afro-Panamanians. And then you're bringing labor in, which is one of the reasons Garvey can get there is because the Caribbean, again, these, these Jamaicans, the Trinis people, remember Trinidad and Tobago right off the coast of Venezuela. So you see people in Venezuela, Afro-Venezuelans, but you also see Afro-Venezuelans who came from the Caribbean into that region. But in Panama, it's a similar thing. And Garvey says, they got these black people out here, basically the equivalent of slave labor. They got them in these forced labor. And what are they doing? They're digging the Panama Canal. And what the United States does is, in fact, Gil Scott here, did Gil Scott here and say that? He's like, you got Panama here and you got Panama there. And then you got this line in between that they call the United States property, the U.S. Panama Canal Zone, which is why John McCain could be born there and still be able to run for president because daddy was stationed in the canal zone. They dug out a little piece of a colony. The United States loves saying they never had any colonies. First of all, you had a colony in Africa. It was called Liberia, 1847. The other thing is, what's Puerto Rico? What's Guam? What's the U.S. Virgin Islands? They're not states. So, I mean, you know, in fact, the Afro-Puerto Rican sister meddled in the Olympics, and when they played the anthem, is that the Puerto Rican flag? So how does that work? Does Puerto Rico have a team? And I thought Puerto Rico was a... So in, words, so in other words, see, the Olympics is good for a lot of reasons. It will show you colonialism and imperialism. So so yeah, the canal zone, oh wow, tiny's down there. It, 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 it is a hand lesson in power. Those lines are all about power. What can you take? And then as A. Philip Randolph said, you know, not only what can you take, but what can you hold? And it's all slipping away at this point. I was gonna say, and we're, you, you keep telling us, and I feel like we're definitely in a, an inflection point in history mm -hmm. where, um, yeah, they, they're not gonna be able to hold a, a lot more and more and more people. And I think we, the people globally, uh, are are waking up and putting pressure on on these uh, fake lines. Of no people. question. What what do you call it, Professor Hunter? The the global majority. The global majority. The yeah, global, yeah. global majority. The people on, are always a majority. It was on full display during these Olympics. There were so many people from the Netherlands, from Ireland, and I was like, oh, black people in Ireland winning. How about that? How do you, how do, you do that? <laughs> Yeah, we should we, we should mention him in passing, particularly since uh, uh, Urias and, and the team and the narrative have him fully mounted. Our dear brother, who made transition since we were all together, uh, the great Renoko Rashidi, world traveler, Pan Africanist scholar, who uh, passed away in the Nile Valley um, just a few days ago, uh, earlier this week. But when you said that, it just reminded me one Renoko's great strength among many was that he would go everywhere in the world and collect photographs and stories and then bring them. And we realize we are everywhere. And so the Olympics is always a, yeah, I mean, we saw the Afro-Cuban, the wrestler, the brother won another gold, 
But like you said, I mean, they said, oh, the Italian is now the fastest man in the world. No, his daddy black. <laughs> Why, you see, y'all good for claiming us <laughs> when you play in this cosplay imperialism, but that man father is black. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? The, uh, the sister from who was uh, on the US team uh, who won the goal, I think she won the goal. I forget, was it 200 meters? She, her father's Ghanaian. So you see all these Ghana flags on social media. I think her name is Moo. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, no. Moo. She's Sudanese. You're talking about from Trenton, New Jersey. Right. Yeah, she's Sudan. I mean, when I saw her, I said, okay, Moo. That, look, when you see them little one consonant and one vowel names, a lot of times that's East African. Dinka, Shilluk, Noor. I said, Moo. Let me look up Atelia Moo. Sudan. Of course she's Sudanese. And so they say, oh, they're in Trenton. They cheering. Yeah, they cheering. But y'all looking at the global majority, as you would say, <laughs> this is Africa everywhere. It's a beautiful thing. Let me she just sure uh, give credit. I got that from Francis Cress Wellsing. So I didn't, I just. Oh, no, no. Well, my, that's the genealogy. Job, yeah. My job is to make sure that nothing gets forgotten. So. Well, um, that's all our job. That's what we all doing. Yeah. Francis Cress Wellsing. That's the first place I saw it. Now, I don't know where she got it from, but yes, I saw that in the ISIS papers. And I was like, well, oh, yes. I did, Sister Francis Cress Wellsing. Yeah, her house is right down the street. From here, right over 16th Street, the great Francis Cress Wilson, her her uh, her sister Lauren Cress, uh, they out of Chicago. Father's medical doctor, I mean sciences and grandfather was a medical doctor as well. Yeah, grandfather. Yes, yes. Oh, that's right. We talked about. I mean, we I realized. Wow, we're uh, this is seventy four, huh? Episode. Oh yeah, welcome. Episode seventy four. No, no, no. I didn't think. It, I mean, I'm just realizing. The ground we have covered, y'all, and we were talking about this before, just a second ago, before we went uh, on, you know, the ground we have covered, if there are 10 levels to the ground we covered, we we probably are at level two or three or four in terms of the layers. And you talked about layers very early on last year, Professor So as you come into narrative, and just to, to tell you all just a little bit of a sense, it isn't of obviously just just the handful of us. The team has continued to grow, and as we begin to peel back the layers of what we've already done, and and, and that's nothing compared to what we're going to do, we realize that all these conversations that we kind of picked are just little points of entry. So when you come into narrative, you know that is a free space where you can get in where you fit in, start where you need to start, but understand that that process will help us develop the discipline, the stamina, and the community to really then begin to act on what we learn. And so I, just for that second, blanked and realized we talked about the Crest family. We talked about the Weldings, and we're going to need to talk about her some more. We need to add her to the you should know list. Oh, Both definitely. of them, right? Because her sister is still, you know, sister's real, a founding member of WPFW, Pacifica Network. I mean, just, a, a you know, in the area of broadcast journalism. And, and and free airways so yeah, those yeah. sisters and, and the folk that have joined are contributing so everybody is mm -hmm. doing their doing their thing because like i was saying to you earlier you know they're they're blind spots there are a whole bunch of stuff i don't know the things you don't know me too no question most things we know everything if all of us are participating and bringing the knowledge so that's you right. know, have that's at right. it right. that's right Tell that's us right more about the brother that made transition before we um get into what we're going oh to renoko rashidi well renoko was uh from california um has spent really the last 
well, over 40 years, really traveling around the world. Um, as I said, museums, um, communities. Renoko was one of the early people, it's been over 20 years now, maybe close to 30, to begin to have dialogue with and then bring others into that dialogue because the dialogue preceded him, but he really introduced these, this community to a, a number of people here in the United States and beyond the Dalit people in India. Uh, the people who in the social structure, they were calling me untouchables. But, you know, you know, they they absolutely identify as an African people, people of African descent who migrated. If you know the history of India, and we, we should probably do a, a, a conversation about the history of India. We're not talking about the Aryan North, but South India. And of course, we know that that type of anti-Black racism persists to this day. You see it uh, very deeply um, when you see, you know, Modi, the prime minister, a lot of his platform is around xenophobia. And that xenophobia isn't even against, is even against indigenous people. I mean, there has been um, a Dalit prime minister, but the anti-Black racism is real. Renoko exposed a lot of that and would travel, in fact, frequently to India, helped put together conferences, Dalit conferences. The Dalits identify with the Black Panthers. I mean, this doesn't, it, wow. you know, it, it precedes them, but um, and in fact, wow, I'm thinking about Arundhati Roy and others. If I could go, I'd go in another room, but I'll, I'll re resist the urge. Uh, there was a Dalit scholar, intellectual, activist, organizer, uh, Ahmed Dakar, A.B. Ahmed Dakar, and he took on Gandhi about this question of racism. Oh, yeah, Gandhi looks better the farther you get from India. And so, but when you look at the white supremacy, in Gandhi's political work. Gandhi, who spent those early years in South Africa as a lawyer. In fact, I got a, all the books on Gandhi that are in English are around here somewhere. If I didn't put them in storage, I had to go get Gandhi in South Africa. There's a whole book on Gandhi. And that's, I mean, there's an early book and then there's subsequent books. Anyway, he, Gandhi was not against the uh, so-called untouchables, the Dalits. In fact, he wanted them integrated into the Indian state. And he wanted, you know, we're all in, but Abba Dakar's critique of him was very clear, and Ahmed Dakar was part of a conversation that included Du Bois, you know, the Garvey movement, folks are aware of this conversation, and you see him pushing back and saying, nah, y'all racist, y'all racist too. I mean, because you want to cap the, the way we participate, you still want to keep us distinct and separate, and so there's this whole conversation, this momentum, and so when you see somebody like Renoko Rashidi emerge, really in the 1980s, 90s, He's basically, and he would talk. He would talk about this. He said, "I'm in the genealogy, and the tradition of Joe A. Rogers, the great Jamaican who lived in New York, world's great men of color, and so forth. John Glover Jackson out of South Carolina, who was also in New York for a time. John, um, John Henry Clark. I mean, he knew all of them. He was apprenticed uh, under those cats. Well, Jackson and Clark and others. And so he followed. He said, "My piece of it will be: I will travel, and I will find these communities, and I'll bring back." to other black communities, evidence of where we are as a global family. He talks about the global, he Renoko talked about the global African presence. Um, just a couple of other things because his bibliography is readily apparent. Um, his, la his latest books, many of them were published through Black Classic Press. Paul Coates, you know, did, did that work. And so you can, you can go to the Black Classic Press connection and, and see that. Also, his earliest, the, well, I became aware of him before I met him and we became friends back in the 90s. 
um, he published uh, work with the great Guyanese scholar, Ivan Van Sertima, who was, of course, for many years at Rutgers. And so you find books like The African Presence in Early Asia, for example, um, Renoko Rashidi and Ivan Van Sertima co-edited. And you look in that edited volume, people say they were Black people in Japan, ancient Japan, medieval Japan. Oh, yeah. And they were Shogun, too. What? Wait, there was Black Shogun in Japan? Yes. So when y'all out here looking at these uh, these uh, these uh, Kung Fu movies and these martial arts movies, now. Nah. Black people were in medieval Japan. In fact, they would say the greatest of the shogun were the black shogun. Black people in Vietnam, black people in China. I mean, wait a minute. Where, and you just see Rashidi and Van Sertima going through literally country by country, not showing recent immigrants, going back centuries and saying this. So the question becomes, when did they get there? And then you just see them continue that conversation. Asia was one of his key areas of focus. But I mean, whether it was Micronesia, whether it was Australia, whether it was New Zealand, you name it, Renoko Rashidi had been there. I mean, to the tune of, what is it? It was 174 countries. I want to say most of the countries in the world he has visited at least once and many times, multiple times. And so, you know, COVID is, go ahead. No, no, I was gonna say, I guess it was powerful that he died doing the very thing that he, uh, that was his life's work, I guess. Yeah, that was, that was, you know, he, you, Man, Professor Hunter, I tell you, it's a sobering moment because I just saw him. In fact, Paul Coates uh, and um, Black Classic Press put together a thing on Black bibliophiles, book collectors, and Renoko gave a talk. And it was a Zoom. We were all in there. Was and then it, was that a month yeah, ago? Yeah, it, it was only a couple of months ago. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And near the end, um, Paul asked me to say a few words about book collectors. I don't know why, because I don't know nothing about that. No, I'm just playing. <laughs> we, we, me and him have a good running joke. I love that brother so much, man. I mean, because, you know, Paul, real, real, he one of them kind of say less dudes, but you know, you know, right? So we having this conversation. And Renoko, and then subsequently, a couple of weeks later, he had a conversation with Tony Browder, his very good friend, my friend as well, but they really tight, he, he, he and Tony, about legacy, among other things. And Renoko is like, you know, I just want to be able to say, when I get to the ancestors, they say, ask me, Renoko Rashidi, did you do your assignment? I want to be able to say, yeah, I did my assignment. And I want Dr. Clark and J.A. Rogers to be like, yeah, he, he did his job. And it is very powerful. I mean, heart attack, we already know. We saw we lost the brother. Uh, in fact, I, I couldn't find his memoir, his, auto, his, his autobiography. I think he published like 2014, 2015. I don't know. I may have taken it in storage. James Rodney Richard. <laughs> Remember J.R. Richard, boy. J.R. Richard would be in the Baseball Hall of Fame if he hadn't had several strokes. And all you people in the Houston press and Major League Baseball white writers who accused him of slacking because he wasn't. Nah, the man had had a couple of mini strokes. And then when he couldn't feel his damn hand, he had a stroke playing, warming up before he pitched. And then now he thought, yeah, he wasn't slacking. But anyway, um, the whole point you know, what I was about to say is that what Renoko, uh, you know, made transition from was a heart attack. J.R. Richard, a stroke stopped him. And our people, you know, those are those underlying conditions. People worry about, oh, I ain't gonna take no vaccine. Listen, the heart thing kills us so much. And I was talking to uh, Dr. Reba Kelsey, who's down where I school of medicine, because I asked her, I said, because we all knew we're NOCO, we all very good friends. And I said, Reba, it, it's heart, like heart problems are the first that's the number one killer of black people she said yeah that's and she said other ones come back come and go but that heart thing is real that's stress that's diet that's exercise 
And I'm grateful that our brother's transition was quick, but I'm also sad to think about whether he, like the rest of us, under stress, not eating when he should eat, not getting enough exercise, whether he could have been on top of the ground a little bit longer, but he did make transition in the Nile Valley, which is a beautiful thing. And he joins Asa Hilliard. And I was there the summer of 2007 when Asa Hilliard made transition in the Nile Valley. We were all there. In fact, we were splitting time. He was splitting time between the Association for Study of Classical African Civilizations. We were there and our friend and brother Jeremiah Wright, and they were in Cairo, in fact, um, and he got sick in Aswan. We were there. And I remember when Mama Patsy Joe, his wife, and uh, um, Baba Rafu and them in the wheelchair when they were taking him out of the lobby in Aswan to fly him back to Cairo about three o'clock in the morning. And uh, he made transition there. And so now we will add when we go back, whenever that is, like normally I'll be in Kemet right now. <laughs> August, we go the first two weeks of August. That's when we go. But we will do our rituals. And I know that every group that goes, Tony, Ashrock, Kwesi, you name it, we're gonna do rituals for that brother. Um, I know, yeah, he's with those ancestors now. And they asked him, he said, I did my job. And they said, yeah, he did a job. Come on, you can come over, sit over here and get that real power. I hope he sits with Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and Trayvon Martin and the rest of them and saying, yeah, come on y'all. Little Tamir Wright, uh, Tamir Rice and all them say, yeah, you know, I did, I did my job to make sure that what they did to y'all, we're gonna, we're gonna live past that. And um, that's the word. You. So yeah. you're doing it. Um, but we are, we, we, we're doing it, y'all. Narrative for real. My goodness. All right. So we're in August. We are in August. Yes. Uh, that's the season. Yes. <laughs> yes. Black August. What does that mean? Black, Black August. August. That's a. You know what? It's so funny, y'all. We were talking about this again. Uh, before we came on, Black August is a fascinating concept. It came into existence at the end of the 1970s, but it speaks to Black resistance, Black self-determination, and there is a tension there. So if we take, well, the, 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 the simple definition is that Black August is a time here in the United States and around the world where we pause and lift up the names and commemorate those black folk who have resisted state oppression in this country, particularly in the United States. Those who have suffered for resisting, directly resisting state oppression, meaning our political prisoners, many of whom still live or are still captive. And so it is not a celebration. And for those who wanna, you know, perhaps see more of a conversation there. Are a lot of different places you can go in terms of websites. If you look to the Jericho movement, for example, which talks about black political prisoners, we'll talk more about them in a second. But I've been, you know, listening to some important conversations, all my friends over at uh, Black Power Media, for example, who are having conversations about Black August, um, who have done a lot of work around Black August. Black August is also anchored in the idea of not only reflecting and commemorating but being disciplined, organizing, even up to and including physical discipline, exercise, diet, trying to get our minds, our souls, our bodies together so that we can organize to liberate ourselves. But the thing about Black August is it's not a, it's, um, 
it's not Black History Month. And I'm not saying that in critique of Black History Month. We talked a lot about Carter Woodson on this con in this conversation, but let's think about it in terms of our, maybe the best, you know what we'll do? We can do it in terms of our conceptual categories. The social structure that Black August came out of is the modern world system, in particular capitalism, American imperialism, American empire. And so that's what created the context for it. And we'll get much more specific in a second. I'm just gonna go through these very quickly. The governance structure, who are Africans to each other, really it organized, Black August organized around Black folk in captivity, prisoners, political prisoners, in captivity, organizing with each other within prison walls. And then from there, expanding outward into networks of other Black people organizing with a single determination to destroy this system of hierarchy and oppression that keeps Black people oppressed and ultimately then oppresses everybody. It's, it's Anti-capitalism is at the heart of it. We'll talk more about that. The ways of knowing in terms of how do people make sense of the world. Black August is no respecter of the imaginary lines we were talking about because oppressed people all over, whether it's the Dalits in India, as they say, but Black folk in the United States, Native Americans, First Nations, because there are, there are Native American political prisoners, Le Leonard Peltier. You know, we talked about the American Indian movement last, last summer. So the, the, the ways of knowing, however, and I'll make a distinction here between Black August and Black History Month. Black August isn't, a we know that, of course, we talked about this extensively, and y'all go and check narrative, because we we had long conversations about Woodson, and we even did the miseducation of the Negro. Y'all can go and, and, and get that, that has now been, been, been formatted for this reason. Woodson, of course, starts in February because he marks the second week in February, the birth weeks of Freddie Douglas and, and Abraham Lincoln, to talk about what some people would say, oh, you know, black history is American history. Woodson was a lot larger than that, but politically and conceptually, he put it there to make that point in some ways and to kind of use that as a point of departure for thinking about the black past. Black August, no. Black August thing is this is a criminal enterprise. It must be destroyed. And then we got to make something different. And at the center of that conversation is a brother who I'm going to talk about in a second, because there, there have been, there's been a number of pieces written about him, but there are two pieces that he wrote that we will focus on. That's George Jackson. George Jackson, who is really seen as the central figure, um, the Jackson family, in fact, mother, his brother, Jonathan. And that's why it's August for Black August. We'll get to that in a second. But if we look at um, science and technology, Black August comes into existence in many ways because of the use of technology. Technology of writing, the book, the letter, correspondence. George Jackson's letters were published in, in the first of his two books, a book called uh, Soul Dad Brother. The Prison Letters of George Jackson. This is a paperback copy of it. It has since been reprinted, as has Blood in My Eye, um, which is the second book. But the technology is there. And Black August comes in the wake of the center of what some people might call the Black Power Movement. One of the reasons why the Black Panther Party was so powerful is because of the imagery. The imagery of that Panther that the Student Nirvana Coordinating Committee and the organizers involved in that went into Lowndes County, Alabama, and took and traced out the panther. But that panther, if you all, those of you who are 
alumni of or familiar with the mascot of uh, Clark Atlanta, you know, now Clark Atlanta University, then Clark College and Atlanta University, Clark College, it's that same Panther. That's the image that ends up in Lowndes County Freedom Organization when they put together that organization so that Black people could participate in electoral politics, not being with the Democrats or the Republicans and really the Democrats in the South during that period. And said so we need our own symbol. And the symbol in Lowndes County, Alabama for the Democratic Party was the rooster. So they said, well, we're going to get something to eat a rooster up. So they take the panther and they take and trace that out. And that panther then, through direct connection with folks who are working with SNCC that summer, ends up on the West Coast. And that's that same panther you see on the berets, on the T-shirts, on the bags for the free food program with the young people, the breakfast program, the clinics. It's that panther. So you see the institutional uh, connection. But in terms of technology, imagery in the Black Panther newspaper, in the photographs, this whole book's called Photographing the Panthers. We see that's when it enters the public imagination and George Jackson cuts a very striking figure. In fact, you can just see him here in his prison gear with his chained at the waist as they would do coming into court for arraignment. And that's the same picture. This is the first edition of the book, Blood in My Eye, George Jackson, member, uh, the, uh, the, uh, who wrote Soul Dad Brother. Here's his picture here, photogenic brother. They put this brother in jail. 19 years old, they gave him from one year to life. What did they convict him of? They said he tried to steal $70 from a gas station in LA. He got from one year to life. <laughs> you know, so wait, wait, what do you, I mean, so, I mean, when we talk about Jackson, I mean, the last letters in Soul Dad Brother are letters between George Jackson and Angela Davis. So, and then, then that's a whole nother kind. I mean, this is a, George Jackson is a major figure. And we'll, we'll get to this point in terms of Black August, but the technology to my point, science technology, it is really moving image technology, recordings. We have recordings of George Jackson, uh, the writing, the books, that's the delivery system that puts them in the imagination, scares the hell out of the United States. A lot of rhetoric we hear now is comes out of a shift in the world, really in terms of science technology and Black people take advantage of that these imageries that, that inspired the fear. Um, movement and memory, Black August, as I say, is a commemoration. It's not a celebration. It's a commemoration. And it's important for us to think about that because, and here's where we here's where we'll get into the definition. Um, George, in fact, let me tie it to something we've already talked about. I didn't pull this. There's been a few graphic novels and others that have talked about this. I remember we talked about this one, the Black Panther Party the graphic novel. And one of the things that this graphic novel on the Black Panther Party does is it includes um, some uh, drawings of political prisoners. Here's Angela Yvonne Davis and here's George Jackson together, right? You see them, they got a lot of political prisoners in here. And it's important because George Jackson was imprisoned and sold at prison in California. And then he and two other brothers were accused of, uh, in fact, I'll just read it out of sold at brothers so you can see. Um, well, here, I'll just read it from the graphic novel. That way we, uh, he was born September 23rd, 1941 in Chicago. And he talks about that in here growing up, his mother, his father, they met there, it's kind of thing. George, George Jackson was sentenced to one year to life for a gas station robbery. He was 19 at the time. While locked up in Soledad State Prison, Jackson became politicized and founded the Black Guerrilla Army, 
an organization determined to educate black prisoners and turn them into revolutionaries. Let me pause there for a second and go to Soul Dad Brother where he tells this story. He talks about, let me see here. Ah, yes. Let's just let him tell the story. George Jackson says, when I was accused of robbing a gas station of $70, I accepted a deal. This may be familiar to folks. You know how this works. I agreed to confess and spare the county court costs in return for a light county jail sentence. I confessed, but when time came to sentencing, they tossed me into the penitentiary with one to life. Or as uh, the old heads used to say where I'm from, they gave him from now on. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? He was like, what's your bid, man? Man, they gave that brother from now on. In other words, this is the treachery. And of course, those of you who are public defenders or former prosecutors or prosecutors right now, but who, who, who work in the system, bailiffs or been in, around the courts. And you know, we, we've both seen those things up front, Professor Hunter. You know, the lawyer will sell you out. I didn't do it. Yeah, well, you didn't, you didn't do it, but I'm gonna tell you right now, just take the deal because you can get in and like, give you six months, whatever. The lawyer sold him out. They gave him from one to life. All right, he goes on. He said, that was 1960. I was 18 years old. I've been here ever since. So that brother, brother was published in October, 1970. So he's in his 10th year, going to his 11th year. Most of that time in solitary confinement, including a place where they call the old block, 23 and a half hours a day, solitary confinement. They didn't let you change your clothes. They didn't let you have a toilet. So in other words, you had to live in your excrement. They wouldn't let you bathe. George Jackson is literally, well, let's, let, let's see what he says. He said, yes, ma'am. What was his crime? They say he robbed a gas station of $70. And for that, he got one, one year. Yes, ma'am. To his entire life. That's exactly right. In the, these United States. Oh, no question. Okay. And, there, and, there, and there are those who are in this conversation right now, watching us and having this conversation, who not only can say, I can identify, who will give us the names of their friends and family, or perhaps even them, who have faced an impossible situation that turned absurd. It ain't just Franz Kafka writing about the trial. It ain't just Doskoyevsky talking, you know, we talking about black Americans who could tell you right now, I went to court, they told me one thing, next thing you know, I was locked up for, and in this case, it's, it's such an extreme case, except what Jackson writes about is not only is it not extreme, this happens all the time, the system is set up to do that. So- justification to putting him in solitary confinement for 23 years with no, no well, back shower and no no ability to change it i mean i don't even understand that well once he got well this is where it turned here's where we go this is where because he didn't go in in the way that he ended up in as a result of what happened 10 years in imagine now you done done 10 years for some 70 so he you've already been in a decade and he says i was 18 years old he said i've been here ever since i met Marx, Lenin, Trotsky, Engels, and Mao when I entered prison and they redeemed me. George Jackson, in the tradition of Malcolm X, in the tradition of many of the men and women who end up in prison, turn to the books. And all of the people who have taken funding away from prisons for libraries, understand there's a reason people do that. All the people who have taken funding away from prisons for GED programs and education programs, 
you do you want you because what you want is to dehumanize prisoners you know you know your purpose is to literally crush them and you if there's a level of humanity that you still remain in you are at the lowest level of humanity when you you make your it your business to erase any possibility of humanity from these people but they couldn't do it to George Jackson he's reading he says, for the first four years, I studied nothing but economics and military ideas. George Jackson did not go into prison as a revolutionary. But that time and that space and his experiences being Black in America came together through the discipline of study and communicating and organizing. This is where it got to be a problem and turned him into one. He says, he says I met Black guerrillas. We're going to talk about that in a second. George Big Jake Lewis and James Carr, W.L. Nolan, Bill Christmas, Tory Gibson, and many, many others. We attempted to transform the Black criminal mentality into a Black revolutionary mentality. As a result, each of us has been subjected to years of the most vicious reactionary violence by the state. Our mortality rate is almost what you'd expect to find in the history of Dachau. Dachau, of course, is one of the camps where they killed, you know, the Jews in Germany, Jews and others, by the way, read Furpro Carr's book, No Relation, C-A-R-R, same spell. It's called Hitler's Black Victims. So it wasn't just uh, European Jewry that were killed in those camps. You had the Roma people, uh, the social structure referred to them derogatorily as the gypsies, the Roma people, another stateless people like the Hmong. Uh, you had black people in Germany as well. Again, Furpro Carr, F-R-R-P-O, Furpro Carr's book, Hitler's Black Victims. Three of us were murdered several months ago by a pig shooting from 30 feet above their heads with a military rifle, which is true. They said it was an altercation. This sniper guy starts picking off black prisoners in the yard, kills three of them. Later, another white guard was killed. And that's where this book comes from. And that's where the harsh, the harsh lockdown happened. As we talk about here, George Jackson, since while locked up in Soledad State Prison, Jackson became politicized and founded the Black Guerrilla Family. Those names I remember, they called the Black Guerrilla Family, an organization determined to educate Black prisoners and turn them into revolutionaries. Jackson began communicating with Huey Newton. Remember, the Black Panther Party had been founded in 1966. This is the problem. So now, here we are in 2021, every documentary they make, every, oh, we're talking about, in fact, volume three, the only one that will be posthumous, well, I, I imagine they'll keep going, but the one that he worked on, the last one he worked on directly that I know of, John Lewis, his, the graphic novel March is coming out. And I was looking at a preview and they showed uh, the Black Panther Party in Alabama that was involved in voter registration, all that symbol. And the language, I don't know whether John Lewis wrote this or not, but the language was like, you know, the people of Alabama, we used a panther, we organized them. It was the mascot of the Lowndes County. I said, mascot? Ah, mascot. It's the symbol. Who's writing this copy? I'm saying, always wanting to sanitize. And John Lewis, freedom fighter, we did a whole, as we said, we had a whole conversation about him, CT Vivian, but pay very careful attention to how the social structure narrates resistance and how they want to steer you into certain forms of resistance. Because for somebody in here, I suspect this may be the first time you heard the name George Jackson. 
There's a reason for that. George Jackson was an organizer too. They were organizing in the prisons and changing people's political consciousness. Remember, Malcolm didn't get thrown into prison in Massachusetts, in state prison, and all of a sudden say, man, I'm gonna turn my life. No, the other brothers in prison were like, hey man, what are you doing? Come on, bro. in other words, organizing in the prison. This is a this this is seen as a direct political threat. And then we talk about these political prisoners, many of them have Muslim names, but the idea is Islam is a threat. I mean, we could, we could draw the line straight through. The people who are out there like, I'm against CRT and I ain't wearing no mask. CRT, masks, Sharia law, communism, all of those are labels for whiteness, protecting itself against anything that they don't define as them. Donald Trump says our country or the governor of Tennessee, Bill Lee says CRT is anti-American. He's absolutely right. If you accept his definition of American as white and what, what Jackson and them are saying is this system is set up to stop. No, if you throw us in here from now on and we're not organizing, you still gonna try to degrade us and take our humanity, but it's not a problem. The minute we start talking to each other and reading books and trying to organize, now you say we are enemies of your system and now you're gonna do anything, which includes in 1970, after being charged with the death of a prison guard, Jackson and his fellow Soldad brothers faced the death penalty. What does that mean? They said George Jackson is the only one who could have organized the people, the prisoners that ended up killing that white guard. No evidence. No, they said, but this is our chance to keep him in here and to subject him to even more degrading conditions. So while he's on trial, he's preparing that, they're gonna put him on trial for the murder of this guard with these other two brothers. That's what they call them, the soul dad brothers. They're gonna put him in on trial. While he's awaiting trial, he has been in correspondence, and some of the letters are here, with his brother, Jonathan, younger brother, his younger brother, Jonathan. Jonathan is being politicized, and that's how Angela Davis comes in. In June 1970, Davis, Angela Davis, here, here she is, right? Angela Davis becomes involved with the Soldad Brothers Defense Committee, which was working with jailed Panther George Jackson, because again, he's in contact with Hugh P. Newton. Okay, you a Panther. He organized the first Black Panther chapter in jail, in prison, not jail, prison. And fellow inmates, John Clichette and Fleeta Drumgo, who were accused of killing a prison guard. That's the other two brothers, John Clichette and Fleeta Drumgo. They said, uh, Clichette, Drumgo, and Jackson got this white, killed this white guard. No evidence. In fact, when they eventually do go to trial, Clichette and Drumgo are acquitted. Because you ain't got no evidence. But y'all was after George Jackson. That's who y'all were after. This brother is too. Anyway, the following month, June, July, at the Marion County Courthouse in California. No, 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 this is wrong. It says in June of 1970, wasn't the following month. Remember, this is all in the context of what in terms of uh, movement and memory? Black August. In fact, I'll just put the date on it. August 7th, 1970, at the Marion County Courthouse in California, Jackson's brother, Jonathan, took Judge Harold Haley hostage in a failed attempt to get George out of prison. In fact, the famous quote he makes when they bust up in the courthouse with the guns, gentlemen, we're taking over, we'll take it from here. 
and they take the judge because you know, some of these brothers they done brought out now part of the soul dead formation black guerrilla army they got them in there for an arraignment no we taking over we we're we gonna bust these guys out of jail both jonathan jackson and haley the judge were killed the police came in shot up the van they were trying to get killed i mean they killed they killed all kind of other people including jonathan jackson the gun used by jackson had belonged to angela davis who was charged with conspiracy kidnapping and murder in the death of Haley. With a warrant issued for her arrest, Davis went underground. The FBI placed her on the 10 most wanted fugitive list and on October 13, 1970, she was arrested in New York City after 16 months in jail. Awaiting her trial, Davis was released on bail in 1972. Her trial followed shortly thereafter and on June 4, 1972, she was found not guilty of the death of charges related to the death of Howard Hess. Remember, and I, we're not old enough to remember, we, we, <laughs> but people want to know as Anza Davis came to prominence, not because of her PhD, not because of her years of study in philosophy. And we talked about the autobiography of Angela Davis. She's written a lot. Y'all can start with the autobiography. We, yeah, we, published by Toni Morrison. Oh, I think, was it Random House? Yeah, I think you're right. That's, oh, that's right, that's right. Come on now, you you know, that's publishing world. That's, just, that's exactly right, Angela Davis, yeah. Um, Muhammad Ali, the greatest. Yeah, yeah, she was the acquisitions. Yes, at Random House, that's exactly right. My uh, uh, sister Dana Williams is writing a book on her time as uh, Angela, as um, as her acquisition work, her work as an editor at Random House. That's absolutely right. Thank you, thank you. That's right, that's right. Asa Davis comes to prominence because she's put on the FBI most one list. They were going to give her the death penalty. Those of you in the documentaries, you can look at uh, what's the sister's name. She was at the Schomburg now. I think she may be at the Schomburg now. Uh, she took a previous documentary, added to it, did interviews, remixed it, called United States versus Angela Davis. Oh, I started calling her name. Starting thing to start with an S. Um, it'll come. It'll come to um, Shauna, Shana. Anyway, it, it'll come to one of us. Anyway, the point is, Angela Davis. Shola. Lynch. Shona Lynch. Yes. I believe her, they were track runners too in New York. Shola and Nana, her sister, I, I covered her sister when she was running track. That's Are you it. serious? Yeah, I believe that they, if, if that's Shola Lynch, I believe that she also, she has a sister and they were track, track and field runners in, in New York City. I did not know that. I did not know that. I mean, it's, it's, it's a unique enough name for it probably to be the same person. Look that up. Yeah, she did. Uh, she did a documentary too on Shirley Chisholm. Shirley Chisholm for She did the Shirley Chisholm 1972 documentary, and then the United States versus Angela Davis. Um, yeah. That's her. Yeah. I'll be yeah. down. See, that's what I'm talking about. See, filmmaker, uh, born in Buffalo. Uh, her younger sister Nana, who I covered. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. They originally her father's from Trinidad and Tobago. Her mother's Canadian. Uh, yeah, yeah. Who are Africans to each other? Yep, she began race track and field in the sixth grade, specializing in 800 and 1500 meter. Uh, by 13, she was breaking national records in the 800, the 1500, and the 1600. That's that's how I know the lynches through track and field, which is weird. Okay, that, but, but, but it just goes to show you. I mean, it, this is, we are having a family conversation, and that's a Pan African way. Trinidad, and then they claim in Canada, but y'all know them Negroes in Canada, unless they go back to the Revolutionary War, most of them from the Caribbean. So <laughs> that's Mama's a white Canadian. Wow. Okay. Okay. Well, that's man. That's man. We, we say it's a small world, but when people say it's a small world, what they're really saying is, in terms of black folk, 
the governance structure. We, we kind of know you can't really go too far in black communities without connecting to somebody who knows somebody who know. Yes, yes. Okay, well, that was her sister. Then her sister Shola did, did the, uh, did the Anza Davis documentary. And so, and in fact, in the documentary, you see some um, actors reenacting. Uh, that was, those were Shola's numbers that I was giving you. She was a track and field runner as well. Her sister was also. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes, those were, that was Shola's. They were both. Wow. That was Shola's uh, pedigree in, in track and field. So I don't, I don't recall. Wow. See, that's, wow. That's interesting. So then, and that that determination to be excellent crossed fields, which is what you often see. You good at one thing and dedicated in one thing, you can often transfer those skills. And she became a award-winning filmmaker. And in fact, now I want to say she's on the staff of the Schomburg, if she's still there, over their film division, um, moving image division. I think is what they call it, New York Public Library. Wow. So yeah, you see George Jackson and Angela Davis interacting in the film. You don't see there's no footage of that, but they reenacted. But the point is that they've developed a very close relationship. The last letters in so their brother Archie Angela Davis, um, who George Jackson, uh, they fell in love. I mean, it's kind of a romantic revolutionary dimension to it. And of course, Angela Davis on trial for her life um, was acquitted. So George Jackson, in order to raise money for his defense and the defense of the Soledad brothers, his lawyer at the time encourages him to publish his prison letters. And that's where this comes from. His brother is killed August the 7th, 1970. Now, while awaiting trial, George Jackson, during that year, they're raising money. This becomes a bestseller. Because remember, we're talking about between 1970 and 1971. So, of course, the Panthers are known all over the world. 69, Mark Clark and Fred Hampton are executed. You know, they just did the movie Judas and the Black Messiah. You see, I mean, the United States has declared war on the Black Panther. And we talked about that. We've had long conversations about the COINTELPRO papers and all this. And not just Black people, but certainly Black people in the bull's ass. And that's just the weather underground. There are others, American Indian movement, but the state is moving against Black people. So um, the following year, that's been a year, the second book, Blood in My Eye, he writes this one. And during that's during the time you're in a 23 and a half hour lockdown in your own feces and excrement, trying to, you know, they don't let you bathe. I mean, these, 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 ugh. But he is getting stronger. This is the thing about George Jackson. That's why Black August is very different than Black History Month. The dedication to the Black communist youth, to their fathers, we will now criticize the unjust with the weapon. George Jackson, quoting Ho Chi Minh, Vietnam. The dragon, he's a, the symbol of the dragon are those who are in the cage. Beware when the dragon is let out. In fact, one of the last things he writes in here, he writes to Eldridge Cleaver, he gets with a, a, a terrible response, kind of blow off response from Cleaver. And in fact, I'll just read you because Cleaver, of course, with the Black Panther Party, it's a whole nother thing. He says, let me see if I can find it quickly. He, yeah, he said, he returned a very scurrilous and profane set of invectives, in short, a piece of vendetta. Tell him, tell Eldridge Cleaver that 7,000 miles, the walls of prison, steel and barbed wire do not make him safe from my special brand of discipline tell him that the dragon is coming 
George Jackson's thing was, we're not going to get out of this condition by talking, by posing. And so that brother, in fact, he has some very choice words for what he considers right wing thinkers like and, 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 and figures like Malana Karinga and Amiri Baraka. This is, a, this is part of the challenge in even how some call revolutionary nationalists, some people will call revolutionary nationalists, think about the label some people would give so-called cultural nationalists. A lot of this is social structure inspired. They would say, see, y'all talking about changing y'all names and going back to Africa and all this kind of thing. That's not what's going to get us free. We're going to have to pick up some guns and free ourselves. We're going to have to destroy this system. And we're in prison, many of us, which means we've already been put in the worst condition. You can't talk your way out of prison. You can't reform your way out of prison. You can't, in fact, a lot of the energy of the young people who are now and others who are in the streets talking about defund the police, a lot of that energy is Black August energy, is George Jackson energy. You listen to them, you talk with them. Um, as a sister, among many others, and it just comes to mind immediately because I was just looking at a conversation she was having a couple of days ago, Yane Indigo. She was an undergraduate at Temple when I was in graduate school there. And uh, they're organizing in Philadelphia and they're reading Blood in My Eye, 10 pages a day during August because this is the last book John, uh, George Jackson did. And he, he dedicates it there, but the opening quote is from his mother. My dear only, here's the page, right? y'all can't see it, I'm just gonna read. My dear only surviving son. She's writing to her other because Jonathan been killed, the teenager on August the 7th, 1970. My dear only surviving son, I went to Mount Vernon August 7th, 1971 to visit the grave site of my heart, your keepers murdered in cold disregard for life. In other words, I went to go see your brother's grave. His grave was supposed to be behind your grandfathers and grandmothers, but I couldn't find it. There was no marker, just mowed grass. The story of our past, I sent the keeper a blank check for a headstone and two extra sites. Blood in my eye. That's his mom. That's his mother. George Jackson did not live to see Blood in My Eye published. Why? Because on August 21st, 1971, two days before the opening of his trial, he had been moved from Soledad to San Quentin. He was killed inside San Quentin. Prison authorities state that he was shot by a tower guard during an escape attempt as he ran from the prison's maximum security section with a gun in his hand and raced for the 20-foot wall. George's words after his brother Jonathan's death became his own best epitaph. When they killed Jonathan, George Jackson wrote, he was free for a while. I guess that's more than most of us can expect. So even though they murdered his brother, shoot into the van, killed all them guys out there. Remember uh, Stanley Nelson's documentary on the Black Panthers? And he's interviewing the Panthers when he had that shootout out there in Oakland and the, the damn Oakland police went out there and shot up the Panthers and then uh, headquarters and the sister went out waving the white flag, you know, stripped down so they couldn't say she had any weapons. One of the brothers was like, you know, I was a veteran, you know, I had been you know, in service with. 
we were inside shooting at the police and they were shooting at us. Now the police started it, you know, shout out to the police doing what you do. Well, then fight the rest of them then. This is revolutionary consciousness. If you're a cop that don't do that, but you get in a car with one that does and they still doing it, that's your fault too. Anyway, they shooting in the Panthers. So the Panthers shoot back. They've been in a gun battle. The brother standing there in the interview says, you know what? We could have been killed any second. But in them moments when we was trading gunfire with the police, I was free. <laughs> now, that brother's going to die old age. Now, he, he made it out. No, but, but he's saying in that moment, so when, John, I mean, when George Jackson writes about his brother, well, you know, he was free, which is more than I could say for the rest of us. Because what he writes about in both these books is, you may not be in prison, but if you Black in America, he talks about being neo-slaves. In fact, let me, just, let me just read a little bit what he says. He's writing, he says, slavery, this is April 17th, 1970. Slavery is an economic condition. The classical chattel in today's neo-slavery must be defined in terms of economics. This is the, some people call it historical materialism, but Marxism, whatever you want to call it. He was saying, you know, I'm a socialist. In other words, you have to destroy hierarchy. He said, get rid of hierarchy, and then we need to have an egalitarian society. If you think about what Cori Bush and Rashida Tlaib, if you think about what Ayanna Presley and Ilhan Omar and all those allies who came out and slept on the steps of Congress since we've been together and who forced the hand, and if you think of other sisters, like Maxine Waters, also from Missouri, St. Louis. A lot of people mean she's from St. Louis. She's out on the West Coast, but like Cori Bush, another year, she's on the inside forcing the committee getting the legislation through. And it gets bottlenecked. It gets bottlenecked because Nancy Pelosi doesn't have the votes to get this moratorium extended. Now, so what does she do? I'm sorry, I think Nancy Pelosi, and then who's the number two person in the House of Representatives? Um, thing. Who's the whip? The whip, I think, is number three. Because the whip is... Uh, oh, yeah. While well, Jim Clyburn was in Cleveland, or wherever he was, inserting himself... Did y'all know that in Cincinnati and in Columbus, and I'm sure in Cleveland, in Cincinnati, I think the number is 50%. Half the landlords in Cincinnati who are qualified to receive Section 8 vouchers won't take them. One of the reasons they won't take Section 8 vouchers is because they don't want those people living in their buildings. And they try to keep poor people, black and brown people contained in, because the overwhelming majority of people who have Section 8 vouchers are black and brown people. I think are close as three quarters, mostly black and also brown. These people are kept in certain places. Now, I don't wanna to get too deep into the housing crisis and, and being unhoused, but I do wanna make this point that's very important in that. Did you find, I forget who number, Steny Hoyer. Number. Steny who? Hoyer. Steny. Oh, Steny Hoyer, of course, Maryland. Mm -hmm. I don't know why I was thinking Steny Hoyer on the Senate side. Yeah, Representative Hoyer. Yeah, so Pelosi, Hoyer, Clyburn, Jim, Baba Jim, you can't whip the votes to get the moratorium passed. Pelosi knows that. So what does she do? Blame Biden. You see, you just, you didn't give us any advance notice. Now, if you listen to Ilhan Omar, particularly in others, but I heard Ilhan Omar in, a, in an interview a couple of days ago, she said, we've been on them since May to get this because it's going to run out. When these landlords, people saying, well, you know, most of the landlords are small, 
landlords. Yeah, that's a, that's all you people like you billionaires want all these tax breaks and say, well, most of the people are small people. Now, don't hide the fact that the real estate lobby is sitting on real estate and what's going on now. You know this better than I do. You probably had the conversation. Have y'all you, have talked about this question of this investor class that has turned to rental property to make all the money? That's what they're doing. They, you know, never let a good crisis go to waste, right? So the, during this period, you're seeing real estate prices go up. They are going to move people from ownership to renting. And so one of the reasons they ain't in no hurry to, spill this, to spend this $46, $47 billion that's been set aside in already passed legislation is they want these people out right here in the state of Maryland. They can't evict you, but they can put you out if you've overstayed your lease. So what they do, they just don't renew the lease. Then they're gonna be, yeah, but I didn't pay. No, 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 the money's coming. That ain't, that ain't it. You overstayed your lease. We gave you 60 days notice, 30 days notice. Now we're putting you out. Why? Because they want that property. Remember, a lot of our people living in the poorer parts of these cities are living in places that are being quickly gentrified. So some of this has nothing to do with, we can't get the money from the federal government. Is state and local government supposed to set up the apparatus and the state and local government is being lobbied hard by the real estate people. And so even the mom and pop people who are using it for retirement income or day-to-day -day income, they getting screwed too. So this is all, all this is going on. These sisters are on the steps. They trying to push it through. You got a sister in Congress, Maxine Waters, trying to get the stuff through. Pelosi and Clyburn and Hoyer can't get the votes. So they blame uh, Biden. Biden says, uh, well, the courts ruled. Now, the courts didn't rule that it was unconstitutional. It was a 5-4 decision. And what Brett Kavanaugh, Justice Beer Kavanaugh did, you got to go read his uh, concurrence. He said, I don't know that the federal government, I don't think the federal government has the authority to extend it. It didn't say that they didn't. He said he didn't think it did. And he was the, uh, the fifth vote, which meant it's still being litigated by the courts. In other words, Biden could have extended it any time. They were passing the buck between. Now, set aside who, you know, any of us might think between Nina Turner and Chantel Brown, we went, but don't you think the conscience of the Congress should have been somewhere on them steps with those sisters instead of out there in Cleveland trying to ensure that all that dark money that Jane Mayer writes about, it, one way or the other, did Turner run a bad campaign? Okay, is that really the point? Somebody get ready to get put in the street. Y'all got better. In, in fact, they get ready to put the street in this city. In fact, in Cleveland. In fact, in Columbus. In fact, in Cincinnati. And for those of you who don't know, Ayanna Presley's parents met in Cincinnati where they were both housing activists. That's one of the reasons why Ayanna Presley out there on the steps with Corey Bush. These young sisters is in there. Y'all can y'all. I don't like the squad. Okay, you tell them. I'm gonna, this is what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna get a hot iron. And, and make and make three letters out of iron, C-R-T. And I'm going to get it real hot on a stove and I'm going to hit right here. And I'm going to say, if you can't tell me one policy you disagree with when you say you don't like the squad, I'm going to burn this C-R-T in your face because you just as bad as them people. I'm against C-R-T. What is C-R-T? I'm against C-R-T. Okay, I'm against the squad. Okay, what you against? I'm against this. Okay, see, y'all watch too much TV. Anyway, so back to the point. What you see here is the reason people don't have a place to stay, George Jackson would say, it's economics. It's a hierarchy. This system depends on keeping people oppressed. We're in jail. We're in prison. We're incarcerated. We see what the issue is. 
We face it literally, but you face it. In fact, I'll end with this right here when he when he places on page 191. For those of you who have a copy of Blood in My Eye, I'm sorry, of Soul Dead Brother, he says, the man who owns the factory or shop or business runs your life. Mm -mm -mm. I read that sentence and I thought about you, Professor Hunter. How many times have I heard you say variations of this? You are dependent on this owner. That's what we build in there. Anyway, listen. He organizes your work, the work upon which your whole life source and style depends. He indirectly determines your whole day in organizing you for work. If you don't make any more in wages than you need to live, you are a neo-slave. You qualify if you cannot afford to leave California for New York. If you cannot visit Zanzibar, Havana, Peking, or even Paris, when you get the urge, you are a slave. If you're held in one spot on this earth because of your economic status, it is just the same as being held in one spot because you are the owner's property. Here in the black colony, the pigs still beat us and maim us. They murder us and call it justified homicide. Wait, this is not 2021, this is 1970, all right. He says, a brother who had a smoking pipe in his belt was shot in the back of the head. Neo-slavery is an economic condition, a small knot of men exercising the property rights of the established social order, organizing and controlling the style of the slave, the life, as if he were in fact property. So he goes on and he says succinctly, an economic condition which manifests itself in the total loss or absence of self-determination. Only after this is understood and accepted can we go on to the dialectic that will keep us in a remedy. Those of you familiar with the word dialectic, you see where he's going with this, right? It's a Marxist analysis, it's a socialist analysis, but the important thing to understand about it is what Jackson is laying the foundation for is in order to change it, we gotta have a revolution. Oh wait, short, short, let me see. There it is. Who published that, Professor? You know who pub you know who published BCP. <laughs> oh, Black Classic Press. Hey, you know what? There's a book recently that just came out where Carl Coates is having a conversation with his longtime con uh, comrade, Eddie Conway. It's called The Brother You Choose. Because Paul Coates was captain of the Panthers in Baltimore. And Eddie Conway was over them, and they put Eddie Conway in jail for decades. And I'm telling you how close these brothers are. Paul and his comrades fought, struggled, caped. Uh, my friend and brother Jerry Ball um, at Morgan State University, they, I was part of the next generation who continued that struggle. And eventually, they got Eddie Conway out. And Eddie Conway and Paul Coates had that conversation in a book called The Brother You Choose. It came out last you know, you're not the brother that came out of my mother's womb, but we, cho we chose him. This is, Paul is very deep in that political prisoner work. So when you see Black Classic Press, there are very conscious and deliberate decisions to publish certain books. And I'm so glad, yes, that you had that one right there on the shelf. That, for those of you who are going to get that book, that, the book you just showed us, Professor Hunter, that's the one you'll get when you go on to get it. This is this is the old, this is, this is the first edition after the, when it came out. So we see them there. There they go. The same picture, right? I love it. I love it. Yes. Yes. And to see, that's what I'm talking about. So <laughs> yes, no, 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 no. But that's it. I mean, and the thing about it is when you, when you crack it open, it just really, it really just, it, it hits you. In fact, this is from blood in my eye. He says, whatever takes place in social life is actively or passively, voluntarily or involuntarily determined by the structure of masses of people. Every form of social leadership is merely the social expression of one or the other side of this structure of masses of people. 
Now he's quoting from something, but then he says there, next, this is page 169, revolutionary change always involves the complete alteration of the structure of property relations and the institutional substructures that support them. It leads from hierarchy to mass society. So they're in prison, reading, discussing, trying to figure out, and they said, it's not gonna be peaceful. So to summarize, his brothers killed August 7, 1970. Two days before trial, John Jackson, I'm sorry, George Jackson is killed. They claim he's trying to escape. They claim he has a gun, but they really just wanted to kill him. That happens on August 21st, 1971. And there you have two of the three deaths that lead to the, the, the commemoration of what we call Black August. The third death happens near the end of the decade. Um, this happens in California again, another brother who was killed uh, in 1978. He was part of uh, the black guerrilla family, organizer, uh, working to organize folk. And he died as a result of not receiving medical treatment. This is 1978 in August. And the following year, August 19, uh, I'm sorry, it was 1978. The following year, 1979, Black August is begun. And Black August then, what people started doing, they started looking at what else happened in Black, what else happened in August that we can that use to think about resistance? The Haitian Revolution. You know, we did a long thing. 1791, August the 4th, is when they formally set off the, the military actions that began the Haitian Revolution formally, right? August the 21st, 1831. And we're gonna talk about this, I think uh, today is the 7th, 7, 14, we go live next week, 21. So not next week, maybe the week after, let's do it, let's, let's have a conversation on what happened on August the 21st, 1831. That's Nat Turner. The Nat Turner Rebellion. Oh, y'all get ready. We're going to have Nat Turner. We're going to talk about Nat Turner. Uh, August the 11th, 1965, the Watts Rebellion. People say sometimes they use that as one of the markers at the beginning of the Black Power decade. And then, of course, what we see is that in years since George Jackson, August the 14th, 2014, that's when Mike Brown, I'm sorry, August the 9th was when uh, Mike Brown was killed in Ferguson, Missouri. And, you know, we talk about Trayvon Martin, we talk about Sandra Bland, we talk, but that Mike Brown killing with that boy laying in the street like that, that really in many ways, people went out to Ferguson and that battle from ground zero, different than Florida, different than Texas, that really in many ways launched this next iteration of struggle that John, uh, Jonathan Jackson and George Jackson would say comes to us. So, if you want to read more about George Jackson, we tell you where to go. We show you there. But if you go to uh, now the other the other dimension, only other dimension I mentioned on Black August now, because Black August is about reading, organizing, thinking, disciplining oneself. A lot of times people fast during Black August because it's about self determination. It's about revolution. It's about liberation, and it's not. And I had this conversation because I can I find myself. Uh, Prof, I find myself sometimes never conflicted, but aware and 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 deeply maybe contemplative is the word of the fact that some things can't be reconciled. 
we can't reconcile them. For somebody in this room right now who's able to sit with a little piece in her or his heart and participate in this, who has your young people, you sending us pictures on social media, children watching and listening, um, who is able to do that with a, and be able to sleep a little bit tonight because you're not worried about an eviction notice. That's real. That's very different than those of us who might either be in a place that we quote unquote own as if there's that's such a thing or a place where you don't worry about your rent money. But somebody's in our family right now who was worried until, you know, until Cori Bush and them was like, hell no, and forced Joe Biden. Nancy Pelosi, whatever. Denny, Steny Hoyer, whatever. Jim Clyburn, whatever. You can't keep pulled in. You don't keep getting the elder pass, man, by talking about people check their tone. Because you would have said that to Cori Bush. Well, guess what? Somebody in your district in South Carolina is not worried about being evicted. And I'm going to take that over, worried about somebody's tone. And as far as George Jackson is concerned, consider that a compromise. Because Black August is about ain't none of y'all. In fact, <laughs> Jackson writes about, he said, all you Negroes is rented Negroes. There's no such thing as a politician that will save this system from, because the system can't be reformed. It's set up to do what it's doing. And so I find myself contemplative because there's a lot to be, there's a lot of merit in that, but that just means there's gonna be pain, but nobody is facing the pain more than somebody who's in lockdown. And so whether it be Khalif Browder, whether it be Sandra Bland, they gonna put suicide on her. Look, that's the end and that's the end. And so you, you have to understand where this is coming from. And so anyway, I, I set out to say that there are a number of political prisoners who are still, when we Abu Jamal been in jail since 1981, now got life without parole. Say again. He's not doing well either, right? He's sick. Yeah, he is sick and been sick. Yeah, that's the other thing. When they giving you life, they giving you a death sentence. That's the death penalty over time. You say, well, cool if you think about the conditions that you're talking about, the conditions in which you are describing that George Jackson, who didn't make it to 30, right? Didn't make no. it out of his, out of his 20s. Uh, and then went to jail for something that somebody would have copped a plea for and gotten probation if they were a different complexion. Which is what they told him that was going to happen. Y'all, well, you won't do no. Yeah, county jail. And then, and then when he got in there and started reading and organizing, oh, no, we, you ain't never getting out. Either we're going to kill you in here or we'll give you however long you're going to live. And then, as you say, in the case of Mumia, who joined the Panthers in, at age 16, in fact, one summer, uh, my Philadelphia Freedom School was on repping the, the 2021 shirt. I was in Philly last weekend. My people, they, they did the red, black, and green version with Jehudi. And to make sure that they understood, young people are vulnerable. What? Wear your mask. See, they got the young people in there. I said, I see y'all. I love, I love those. Shout out to my man, Mark Martinez, uh, my brother, who is uh, the dean over there at Sankofa Freedom Academy. And um, Mama Aisha Imani and my sister, Erica Asakoye, they was all over. I was like, man, I love y'all so much. And in fact, I don't have to move back to Philadelphia. I don't know. I'll come back closer to Jersey because I love them. Because, you know, Sankofa Freedom Academy is a K-12 public charter school. Uh, we call it the country's first K-12 freedom school. And they have been working all summer. They work year round and they got all kind of other stuff going on. My sister, silly, sister, uh, Dr. Kelly Sparrow, uh, Sparrow Mickens, she had all the t-shirts from 22 years of freedom school. I'm like, you got all this shit. This is the history right here. But anyway, um, the point is that 
those political prisoners, of course, we know one summer, our freedom school students, we had them read uh, one of Mumia's many books, his memoir, We Want Freedom. And what you see is he's on the front cover of the book, answering the phone at the Panther headquarters. He's a teenager. At the time, Mumia Abu-Jumal, uh, whose European name was Wesley Cook, was a high school student at Benjamin Franklin High School. And they wanted to change the name of Ben Franklin High School to Malcolm X High School. They even made up diplomas and did everything else. North Philly, all day long. And so, but the Panthers there, you know, Frank Rizzo stripped the Panthers naked in the middle of the street in North Philly. All of a sudden, this is war against the Panthers. And a lot of those Panthers are still in prison. Cats like uh, Paul Coates' brother, uh, Eddie Conway, locked up out of Baltimore. You know, Paul himself is from West Philly. I mean, you know, born and raised, I've seen him raised in Baltimore. Paul's from West Philly. And so Delbert, Africa, the so-called Move Nine. Ooh, yeah, I was gonna just bring them up. Um, Wilson Good and what happened to them. You know, I, as you're talking, I'm thinking <laughs> revolution is so much more dangerous, right? You, oh, yes. You know, all of this talk. And, and but, but you're not telling people not to vote. You're not telling people that, you know- I'm not. Um, you know, you're saying it's it's probably going it's probably going to crumble. Uh, just you know, but do we do we sit home? Like, is it better to or if we all organize? I mean, just like, what's the solution here? If we're going to stay. Well, I know we're and you know we as as we begin to wrap up. That's why I say it makes me contemplative because I absolutely understand. I mean, when you all read Blood in My Eye and you read So Dead Brother. You're gonna find you'll find very little to disagree with. The question is, what do we do about it? You'll find very little to disagree with. I mean, one of the reasons that oh man, you got me really. Uh, we're getting ready to, to wind this up, but I have to be very by nature. I'm a reader. I read and I sit and think, and when we see the connections, it's our obligation. You know, we're both teachers. And in your case, it's not just your university classroom. In fact, that's just one dimension. It's not just narrative. It's not just us here on Saturdays and in class and then connecting that to narrative and continue to drive the building of that pyramid, the building of that institution. You're doing it every day on the airwaves and it's entering people's ears in a form of technology that has never been displaced and that this pandemic elevated again, which is radio. Radio is even different than this. People watching this, but when you have nothing but words in your mind, now you're building, you're thinking about, I mean, your mind just explodes. And so we are both well aware of the importance of language and time to think. George Jackson had nothing but time. Even the material conditions that they put him in he made a choice and then found others who made a similar choice. And so the analysis in these books and young people who might watch this and playing on social media and make those little memes with uh, uh, um, Damon Wayans with the Kofi on his head and mispronouncing words and that, yeah, that ain't this. And I tell you what you should never do is disrespect those who facing the belly of the beast, make a choice to start reading and thinking. So why you like, see the pontification of, or should I say, it ain't funny to me. Why? Because you not in jail and don't read. 
So, <laughs> saying, so who I'm really laughing, if I was going to laugh, I ain't laughing at none of it, but if I was, if I had, if somebody said, you got to laugh at one of the groups, you got to laugh at the cats in prison trying to educate themselves or the people not in prison making fun of those cats. I'm laughing at people not in prison who will spend their entire lives arguing about verses Uh-oh. and will never pick up a book. But I'm not going to laugh at either one because I understand, as George Jackson said, that's part of a hierarchical system. If you want to know why the public education system is trash, look at the people who make the profits. Who's got the toilet paper contract? Who's got the electricity contract? Who's got the food contract? The same people, look up Sodexo and find out. The same people feeding your children in the schools are feeding the prisoners. In other words, we got to keep this criminal enterprise going and on getting get to because then people think see that's that conspiracy theory my thing is it absolutely is could you please show me where because i'm getting ready to laugh at you because between the two of us i guarantee you on your life that i've read about it studied about it listened about it and i suspect that you're just repeating some you saw on the internet but that keeps you making fun of people who are doing this intellectual work this is first rate intellectual works anyway i don't get too deep so what do we do about it I think this is where the bridge, I think, is built. And this is where narrative is important. But before I say that, let me let me spend another 30 seconds just giving a few more names of people because we think about this. We don't want to forget these people. The Move Nine, Eddie Africa, Janet Africa, Janine Africa, the Africa family. They've been in jail, many of them, since the 1970s. Uh, they accuse, and most of these people they lock up, they accuse of killing police, park rangers, local city cops, state troopers. Uh, Jaleel Mutaking, Black Panther Party, Black Liberation Army. They accuse him of killing two cops. So they give him life sentences. He is out of jail. He was released on, on, on parole. He came out of jail in October 2020. You know what the Department of Human Services in New York State did? They gave him a packet, the same people, they, the same packet they give people on parole. He's filling out all the forms to, 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 for them to transition into uh, quote unquote civilian life. He's in New York state now when he's doing this. One of the forms they gave him was a voter registration form. He fills it out. So what did the police and the DA do? They tried to violate his probation, say he committed a crime by trying to register to vote. But that ain't, that ain't the end of it. In New York, the state restores the voting rights of felons within a window but the window hadn't passed yet. End of the story is actually thank God, thank, thank, thank the people that a grand jury refused to indict him. That happened in March, 2021, a couple of months ago. However, his automatic restoration of rights was stopped by the man whose signature restores the rights of people, uh, of, of ex-prisoners automatically, except in this case, he intervened and said, I will not, I reject Jalil Mutakim's automatic restoration of voting rights. Who is that guy? He's the governor of New York. I can't think of his name. Uh-oh. What's his name? <laughs> the one the sister's getting ready, who cut his whole head off. I think uh, Letitia James showed his whole head on the press conference uh, earlier. In the week, right? Here he is. Is this your king? Uh, oh yeah, Cuomo. Sorry, bro. <laughs> so while you going to jail, 
you about to lose your job, this point our sister, <laughs> you know what I'm saying, from South Carolina, the Washington Post, y'all, if y'all can find the Washington Post magazine from two weeks ago, they did a cover story on that sister. Her story is fascinating. This sister on the men, you about to lose your job. This sister who wrote this article went down through what it means for Black women who are living in these kind of conditions and trying just to feed their children and come through. She takes that little video and goes through the life story of this sister, her children, her, 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 her boyfriend, all that. And it was a fascinating look into the circumstances that would lead these damn fake police to put they put her in handcuffs in the first place, leading to the get this dance. <laughs> you <laughs> she goes through the real and like, George Jackson's talking about is set up to do that kind of thing. So anyway, um, brother Cuomo, bye-bye. But Jalil Mutakim not going back to jail, but he was one who was locked up. Jalil Mutakim was locked up since 1971. Matulu Shakur. Matulu Shakur was accused of helping Asada Shakur escape. Good point. If y'all read Asada, see, this is not a political prisoner. You know why? They got her out, still don't know how. She in Cuba. And happy 60th birthday, belated 60th birthday, uh, Barack Obama. Uh, shout out to you going to Cuba with your wife and asking Raul Castro to give up Asada. And shout out Raul Castro from like, yeah, so uh, what y'all want to eat? No, Mr. Obama, you're not going to get Joanne Chesimard. You and your friend Chris Christie and all the rest of y'all got a price on the side of his head. You just going to have to do that. And as I told James Comey, when Howard invited him to be a guest faculty member, the first meeting, they said, well, we want some people to come over and talk with him. I sat there and I said, you're coming on this campus. I want you to understand something. There are young people on this campus named Asada. You understand? So if you're gonna be in dialogue with them, you probably need to be prepared for honest dialogue about the fact that on this campus, there are a number of people, and I'm one of them, who consider her a hero. And I suspect you don't even call her a side of Shakur. You probably still call her Joanne Chesimar, but just know that there are young women on this campus named for a side. That's the campus you coming to. He was like, I'm taking notes. Oh, this is good. I'm thinking to myself, I really don't care whether you write this down or not, because I'm only here so I don't get fined. But the point is, I'm gonna let you know that all of us ain't here to stand up and salute social structure. <laughs> anyway, so, and you ain't gonna, you know, you gonna sit there. I, I wonder what's gonna happen. And I, I don't think he ever encountered one of them Asada. This is a freshman now at Howard. She's a STEM major, brilliant young sister. I had her in summer school this summer uh, named Asada. And I know, I mean, so I'm just saying, but Matulu Shakur, the Shakur family, um, y'all know Shakur, of course, as in Tupac Shakur, his mother, Afini Shakur, the Shakur family. Dr. Matulu Shakur is still in prison. He'd been in jail since 1986. Russell Maroon Schultz since 1970. Sundiata Coley, 1973. I mean, the whole point is all these, in fact, if you want to get a good anthology, I pulled there a number of one. I like this one because it is, um, it's almost 900 pages and it's cheap because a lot of people doing this work want you to get the book. This is called Let Freedom Ring. Let Freedom Ring, a collection of documents from the movements to free U.S. political prisoners. Martin Meyer is the editor. But the beautiful thing about this is it is organized around what is a political prisoner? And, and George Jackson talks about that. International tribunals, it goes beyond the United States. Um, a lot of people are still around. Of course, Jerubal Ben Wahad, of course, is still here. Um, it's got a whole chapter on settler colonialism, a long chapter on that, including the United Nations. Appeals to the United Nations. Uh, it's got a whole section on Puerto Rico, colonialism in Puerto Rico. 
um, resisting repression. It's got a whole section on LBGTQIA plus or queer communities and how that the intersection, uh, how that operates in terms of oppression and certainly in terms of political prisoners as well. A section on Mumia and the free and the way to move him out has a section, section seven, Professor Hunter, and those of you sign up for narrative, y'all know. Everybody else, get this dance. <laughs> get over there to narrative, right? Has a whole section on John Brown. We start talking about being an ally. Y'all go check out what we did on John Brown. It's like a, it's actually it's hundred pages on John Brown, the the prisoner rights movement, the the government's illegal and ongoing war against the Black Liberation Movement, including a, a, an interview with Asada Shakur from 1991, and then a struggles continues section, which talks about many of the lawyers and others. It's a very good anthology if you want to talk about political prisoners. There are, there are a number of them, but that one there will give you pathways to many of the other ones. That and the Jericho. Uh, project. So anyway, what do we do? That's where we're going to end. Um, thinking about our African studies conceptual categories, using Black August as our point of entry. We know the social structure we live in. George Jackson then laid that out, and he's not alone. We know the governance structure we live in is the debate on what do we do about it. Do we vote? I say yes. A lot of my comrades say, no, it ain't gonna do you no good. And my response to them is usually either you are so deep up in the system that you would say, we just need to physically resist. You're, such, you're, you're at such the bottom of the hierarchy and I get that. Or you are so comfortable that you ain't gotta worry about being evicted. So that this is, I stopped short of calling it cosplay revolutionary because I know that people are well-meaning and they understand, but I'm saying, it seems to me, as Gil Scott Heron once uh, once uh, wrote and performed, you know, in um, Inner City Blues, right? When when he says, you know, I looked at I'm looking at the sister, and the sister has some hungry babies and has some decisions to be made. He said, "Would you rather go to your grave as a slave for a minimum wage?" And then he said, "You know, made the devil want to holler, throw up both his hands, and scream revolution." And then he goes back into Marvin Gaye because he put that spoken word between Marvin Gaye's lyrics and he comes back, crime is increasing, trigger happy policing, panic is, panic is spreading, Lord knows where I'm heading. And, but, 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 but in that poem, he starts that poem when he says, you ever wonder what made Mark Essex choose to fight the inner city blues? Yeah, Essex took to the rooftop guerrilla style and watched while all the crackers went wild. Yeah, brought in the elephant gun to block out the sun. In other words, that goes back to something that happened in the 1970s when a dude named Mark Essex got to the roof of the Howard Johnsons in New Orleans, ex-military, and started taking white folks out with a sniper. But what Gil Scott Heron adds between the stanzas of Marvin Gaye's inner city blues is you ever wonder what made Mark Essex choose to fight the inner city blues? But the question is, in fact, I'm gonna show you, wait, I don't have it right. Yes, I do. If I can pull it, let me move some of these books off of here. This is my stack for this week. Actually for the last, some of these things I've been going for a little bit over a month, but this one here, I have to pull this down. This right. novel. This stack is deep. It's like you built a, a foundation. Oh yeah. See, like, yeah, this one got pushed down. This is at this novel is actually Sundial, which includes a sniper incident 
on the campus, imaginary fictional sniper incident on the campus of Howard University. It's written in 1986 by L.C. Morse. Cornell West, who went to graduate school with L.C. Morse, with Lawrence Morse at Princeton, said, this is the HBCU novel. Um, I would have to agree with him, first of all, because I don't know too many others. I know a few others, but, but this novel, what he's showing is what Morse writes about is all the different ideas and students who are at a HBCU. You got the revolutionaries, you got the petty bourgeois, you got people going home for the holidays, arguing with their parents, or you you went one way, you came back another way. And so, and they meet up at the sundial. The sundial, of course, is the uh, clock, is the little clock on the campus of Howard University, right outside Founders Library. But the interesting thing about this is that L.C. Morse, Lawrence Morse, does a great job in kind of showing the complexity of this. And just to update everybody, since 1986, Lawrence C. Morris is now the chairman of the board of the Howard University Board of Trustees. You ever wonder what made Mark Essex choose to fight the inner city blues? Yeah, Essex took to the rooftop guerrilla style and watched while all the crackers went wild. My point is that this country will push you and they gonna give you no middle place. <laughs> this system don't give you no middle place. Now, now the thing is, well, let's just keep working hard. We'll try to reform the system. We can change it from within. George Jackson is like, that can't happen. Do y'all understand y'all are tools now? And if you think George Jackson was the first one to say it and to say to these people who will be considered what he would call petty bourgeois black people, we would say our enemies, understand it from the campus of Howard University. 30 years before Sundial came out, this brother right here, E. Franklin Frazier, wrote a book called Black Bourgeoisie. He was on the faculty of Howard University, sociologist, and he says the Black middle class has no power, and it creates these little Black enclaves to convince itself that it's relevant. But meanwhile, the system that keeps us all inlaid is laughing. So. I'm gonna, I know we're getting ready to wrap. So in terms of what we're gonna do, I, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna stop short because we gotta have this conversation. How, for those folks who, who think that activism can be married to what in this book, E. Franklin Frazier calls conspicuous consumption, mm. understand that maybe it can. Because Black people want to enjoy life. But when you set out to say that you're about structural transformation, and then, in fact, you know, where was I reading this, Professor Hunter? Um, oh, Ishmael Reed, the writer from Buffalo. Ishmael Reed, the, the long profile of Ishmael Reed in the most recent issue of The New Yorker. And Ishmael Reed said, he asked a question. He said, could you imagine Fannie Lou Hamer on the cover of Vogue? <laughs> we, did we just talk about something similar to this before? Oh, no, I don't know. I, I'm going to leave that in the air. I don't know if you okay, want to. Gonna... No, I'm just. I mean, well, I'll put it this way. Say it, I, would, I, I would not know the difference between the T for Telfar and the T for Tennessee State. But when I see life sucks, life savers flavored bags and people, look, hey. Do what you do. Everybody need a break. 
But when you send that out over the technology, people then wonder, I ain't gonna say people. I wonder, I don't, please, please, I wonder, are you sending a mixed message to people, some of whom don't have a place to stay, others of whom may have a place to stay, but are willing to put their thing on the line for people who don't, and then others who say, I don't know what to think, but it must be okay. So therefore, maybe I'll just sit here and wait and see what happens next. I don't know, Professor Hunter, do we have response? Do people who call themselves leaders, and George Jackson wouldn't say that. George Jackson, like Bob Moses and him, Ella Baker said a job of a revolutionary, a job of organizers to put themselves out of a job. In other words, you don't go in a community and tell people what they need. You go in a community and say, how can I help? What are we, you know, you know this kind of thing. Is it is it a contradiction? How do you? I always say two things can be true. Um, people yes. can have joy and happiness and live your life uh, and, and play hard, work hard. Uh, that's kind of the way I live. Um, but you also, you know, sort of like children are watching, people are watching everything that you do, everything that comes out of your mouth. And I think there has to be a congruence between what you say and what you do, how it's viewed and how it lands. And, you know, yeah, you know, we all have judgments and things that, that we think about other people's lives, which is why when you are at that level of leadership or activism, I think you should be mindful. I mean, you know, unless you're, you know, Oprah, who I don't put in the leadership category, right? You know, entertainer, right? So everything she does can be for for commodification, for 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 commercial use, right? That's right. So can, you know, film all of the things. I don't know. I mean, it, it's a it's a good question, but here's what I'll do. You know, let's put that over here. Yes. Because, you know, how does it free us? I don't know that it does. I don't know that it does either. But you know, and and, and it's like um, I was talking with Sam Reynolds, one of your yes. Um, he said, you know, we can get fixated on these spaces, right? Um, but, you know, you could draw a line on a piece of paper. He did this for me, and he said, how do you make this line shorter? And he said, you're doing it. You make your line longer. You know, as long as you focus on that short line of somebody else, instead of making sure your line is longer you know, you're going to be stuck being short or figuring out how to shorten somebody else's line. But it's not about somebody else. It's about you. It's about me. It's about what we are doing collectively and lengthening this line so that we uh, won't have to start from scratch every generation. And that's, you know, I think the frustration is where, you know, you mentioned versus everybody got something to say, you know, the latest one, the locks versus Dipset and Jada Kiss and, you know, there's a lot of commentary around it. And it was- too Which is great. I mean, hey. And it's, you know, we need those breaks, you know. Um, we need quarantine, During quarantine, it was amazing. At the same time, the there should be equal and opposite. And right now there isn't equal and opposite. And That's so, right. you know, we just need to balance and make sure that, you know, you, you have fun and that you're doing work. And, and from that particular image, most of the people, or at least half of the people I know for a fact are rolling up their sleeves and getting busy. So I know- No question. You're done. So I'm, not, I'm never gonna question that. But you, no. you raised a question about, you know, our responsibility to the people who are watching. And- that's the, that's the question for me. Yeah, I don't question them. I don't question the, uh, the work. It's, it's the response. What is it? What is, yeah, yeah. Cause I mean, it reinforces that that too, that's what I'm working toward. For the gram, yeah, no, listen. Yeah, I, for the gram, and, and for the, and for I mean, 
for material wealth, for, you know, you, you, when you, when you talked about and this, this, this actually was the impetus for, for me making sure, you know, when you told me about, you know, the end of, of Carter G. Woodson or, you know, mm. how, how a lot of these people who put their entire lives into making sure we know stuff died pretty much penniless, had to scrape and, and put together nickels and coins from children. Yes. Things happen. To me, you know, and I watched this thing on C CBS with Darren Walker and, and the Ford Foundation. And, you know, mm. I know Darren Walker, and I don't know if we should even bring this up, but I'm going to. You know, the enormous amount of money that is being given. Uh, and we talked about this philanthropy. Things that, uh, you know, that, that will build um, other people's empires, so to speak. That's right. So I'm like, okay, you know, we, we're going we're gonna to build this one brick at a time. I wish there were more people building things one brick at a time. And, you know, I said for, for us, and then we had- There will be. Now keep, keep, keep going, because I want to, while you're talking about this, go on. I'll show you shorts. All right. Okay. <laughs> for, us, for us, you know, the goal, the goal is, you know, to collect and bring in more people and, and support more people who are actually doing the work, because usually folk that are doing the work, they go silent. We don't see them on the gram. They're not the ones with the million dollar endorsements and checks and things and uh, you know, sponsorships and, and even you know, foundation money coming in. They're the people that are grinding it out, nickel and diamond it the way Carter G. Woodson did. And I don't want anyone who is a Carter G. Woodson in this generation to ever be financially insecure. You should have as much money as, and I look at the Hasidim, they make sure, let me just, I'm going to say this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I sat on the radio with, with a Lubavitch uh, rabbi for four years, and hmm. they, they fund their scholars. You father in, in the Jewish community doing that work, you don't you can have 12, 15 children, they will make sure you're taken care of. That's right. Because that's important. Mm. I, I just need to say that. All no, right. no, no. Thank you. Because Jaira Clark said that. He said you take care of your scholars. I mean, George Jackson did that from prison. And while he is there, while they are there, while these and by the way, one I didn't mention, I will mention, there's only one living former chair of Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. There were two until last summer, and then John Lewis made transition. The last living member of the that 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 group, Chuck McDew, Marion Barry, Kwame Therese, Dorothy Carmichael, John Lewis, the fifth, fifth used to be known as Hubert Rap Brown. Now Imam Jamil Alamin, who is in federal prison for the crime of killing a sheriff deputy in Atlanta, where the witnesses have recanted, the case has fallen apart, but in the words of the damn police, when they arrested him and got him convicted, the prosecutor, we finally got him. In other words, this Black Liberation War, Black Guerrilla family, y'all remember H. Rap Brown and found looking at his his books right here, the one he wrote while in prison, The Rap is Live, Revolution by the Book, and the other one, Die, N-Word, Die, which is the one that he was writing around the same time, Blood in My Eye and them came out. They don't give you any peace. Now, while all that's going on, since you mentioned the Ford Foundation, that's why they get up. This is Karen Ferguson's book, Top Down. The Ford Foundation, Black Power, and the Reinvention of Racial Liberalism. Because while this war is going on, this is when Black Studies, the Black Studies movement jumped up on these college campuses, Ford sunk millions into shaping the direction of Black Studies. Mm. In other words, they're not revolutionary. 
they're going to make sure you're not either. And so the point is, but they're going to turn it into, we should study this and we want to help society be better. Watch where people put their money. In fact, we, we talked about this before and we're going to, we have to talk about this again because um, when we, uh, last summer we talked about Dunbar High School and the importance of Dunbar. I'm reading a book now, which um, is a very austere, important reminder. This is uh, Chantella Sherman's book, In Search of Purity. Popular Eugenics and Race Uplift Among New Negroes, 1915 and 1935. She got a whole chapter in here on Dunbar High School and Howard University and how some of the people involved in that Black group were eugenicists in terms of the, well, the idea, not just biological eugenics, skin color, proximity to whiteness, social eugenics too. We got to breed a better class of Black person. Don't y'all see that? This is a question of class. It's a question of social class. Who is your family? Who are your connections? And that stuff is deep in the class tension. That's one reason Franklin Frazier is like, y'all ain't got no power. You're trying to create an imaginary world to operate in. And George Jackson is like, yeah. And while you're doing that, they killing us and they will kill you too. Nobody is safe. Even Oprah, you're trying to shop for a new bag in France. They're like, no, you, didn't this man tell you? But, but the whole point is that in that process, who's funding this eugenic stuff? Who's giving money to some black faculty at HBCUs during this period? General Education Board, Julius Rosenwald, Rockefeller Foundation. In other words, put the money with the people that will engage in some form of analysis and critique, but who won't say this whole rotten system gotta be. No, we gotta grow the people who winning and then give them the awards, give them the fellowships, and is this a critique of those people? George Jackson would say, hell yes. I would stop short and say, no, not completely. Because in order to, for people not to fall into that, you gotta have a place for them to build, which is why this narrative thing is so important. You gotta build a space where people can build. Now understand as you do, it could be problematic. But see the problem, the other thing we have now is, now it's not even like the seventies or eighties. The system is there, the system is global, but we're increasingly aware the system is global. So let me let me, let me, let me end with this because we have to keep fighting. Uh, one other thing is today, Saturday the 7th, tomorrow is actually the anniversary of something that's in Tennessee. Now, we talked about Juneteenth. I wonder how many people have heard of Emancipation Day on August the 8th. <laughs> that's crazy. August the 8th, 1863, Andrew Johnson that criminal, who was at the time the military governor of Tennessee, freed the enslaved, the Africans he had enslaved, including several of his quote unquote children, right? One of the guys was Sam Johnson, a formerly enslaved African. Sam Johnson helped organize the first Emancipation Day in Tennessee. He was in Greenville, Tennessee, August the 8th, 1863. People say, well, why would they call it Emancipation Day? Because that's when they found out. Because you know, let's just get this straight. People say Juneteenth is when the last, mm -mm, that was June 1863. I'm sorry, June 1865. Juneteenth is not the day, because guess what? He organizes it in 1871. Why? Because even though Johnson called himself freeing his, the enslaved Africans he had captive, remember the Emancipation Proclamation did not apply in Tennessee, in Kentucky. And so you know what freed them legally? 
the 13th Amendment. That was December 1865. Some people say, oh, Juneteenth was the last. Mm -mm. If you was in Tennessee, as Abraham Lincoln said when he was running for re-election, he said, in this war, I want God on my side, but I must have Kentucky, which means what? I'm not going to end slavery in a state I got to win. So Emancipation Day to this day in, in Western Kentucky, in Tennessee, parts of Tennessee, is still celebrated. And if y'all want to check it out on Emancipation Day, oh wait, is that, is that Juneteenth? Well, is that January 1st? No. Add August the 8th to your list. And if you look at the Beck Center, James and Ethel Beck in Knoxville, that's a whole nother story about these black, this black power couple back from the turn of the century, early 20th century. Uh, the Beck Center does big Juneteenth thing. They're still doing I mean, a big Emancipation Day thing. And in fact, the governor of Tennessee in 2007 put together a bill recognizing Emancipation Day. And in 2020, while everybody was scared, the Tennessee legislature had, argued that Emancipation Day should be a state holiday. I'm not talking about Juneteenth. So that shows you George Jackson and the SEC are giving y'all them holidays because they trying to stay in power and they keep trying to distract you. We don't want no holidays. So Black August is not Black History Month. Black August is the day you say, now let's turn in. And so- um, We got a, you got a 900 page book? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I gotta, yeah, I gotta, I gotta go. I, I, yeah, in fact, you know what? I'm gonna save this one because uh, I haven't been down there yet. But if you're in the DC area, you know, the museums open back up. People say, well, you need a ticket to get to the Museum of African-American History. Yeah, but you can go online and get a ticket. It's not a problem. Same day, you can do that. But trust me, you don't want to start with the Museum of African-American History if you're talking about Black stuff. There are other museums in the Smithsonian, the Anacostia Museum across the Easter River. But the National Museum of African Art, I could finally get in there. I don't know when I'm going to go. I got between now and next week. I'll come back with a report. There's a new exhibit that was delayed, it opened when they reopened a couple of weeks ago. And I've had the exhibition catalog for a year, Caravans of Gold, Fragments in Time, actually over a year, Art, Culture, and Exchange Across Medieval Sub-Saharan Africa. That's Mansa Musa, who gave, out, who gave away so much gold on his Hajj to Mecca that it, that it depressed the value of gold in the world. That ain't the point. In this exhibition are pages from the writings of Ahmed Baba from the 15th century in Timbuktu and older copies of the Tariq al-Sadan and the Tariq al-Fatash, two of the oldest books that Black people wrote on the history of West Africa dating back as far as the 13th century. So I'm going to, between now and next, I'm going to have to get, I got to go, I just want to Y'all understand the importance of reading and writing. Ain't nobody teach Black people how to read and write. We taught the world. And 1619, what's about 1619? I'm talking about 1319. Can we at least go back 300 years? So Ghana, Mali, Songhai, when we come back next week, I'll have a report. But I can't wait to see those documents. So y'all. Oh, we're, we're live next week. So. Oh, oh. You know what? Oh, Professor Hunter, we got to figure that out. I mean, and you're a genius at this too. So going live. Should we get people to ask questions? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, at, me, at me on Twitter, and then I'll, uh, you know, say you want to ask a question, and then I'll follow you, and then you DM, and then I'll send a link. Let's do two. Let's do two. Let's do two. Yeah, I mean, and if there's something between now and then that com that comes to your mind, our narrative people should have some kind of 
pride of place in this. I think, I think you're right. We should give pref, pref, okay. Yeah. Let me get with your race. I knew it was, was going to click. Right. What'd you think? <laughs> Yes, yes. So if you're a narrative member, you're going to get preference. Uh, so narrative members only will get to ask questions. I'll do that. I'll do it like yeah. that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, that's way smarter. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. No, 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 no. We figured it out. We figured it out. All right. All right. So love you. Love you too. Love you too. See you next week, everybody. Hit the like button, subscribe, share. That's here. Happy Black August. Y'all go look it up. <laughs> get ready to go read this blood in my eye. Woo, uh, don't get mad. Hey, look. I'm already mad, so this text me, text me, text me. We we should have a blood in my book club. Okay, I'm bad with it. Let me get into it. I appreciate. No, let's do it. You you know what? See, see what you think. Hey, hey, y'all, in narrative. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Yes, yes. Okay, everybody, pause. I'm calling. I'm telling all these people in my head to be quiet, except George (laughs) Jackson, who I don't want to piss off because the dragon has come, and I don't want to. Love you too. All right. See you next week.